Hello, folks. How you doing? Um, what a privilege it is for us to be here this morning. Uh, I love Trinity. We have been here for um, a little over a month, and uh, we're so happy to be here. Uh, honestly, uh, it's such a blessing just to stand here and to say, hey, we're officially part of the church. Uh, and uh, thank you, guys. It's been such a blessing. Um, <clears throat> I promise Tim will be up here soon. Some of you guys are probably like, this guy again? Um, and so, <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, soon enough, you'll have Tim back. I also want to hear him preach, okay? Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, what do you guys say we um, go ahead and jump into our word? But before we do that, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful, Lord, for the gift that this uh, is, Lord, your word. Thank you, Father, that you decided to reveal yourself to us. Lord, we know that you're in control of all things, and if you didn't want to be known, you wouldn't be known. And we thank you that you've revealed yourself through your word to us as your children. So, Lord, we thank you. Forgive us for taking this word for granted. And, Lord, I pray that as we read scripture this morning, that you would be the one who speaks to our heart. Lord, I pray that if there is anything that I say that does not align with the truth of the gospel, Lord, I pray that it would fall down and be forgotten. Lord, I pray, would you please give us the sermon, Father, as we study your word. Would you please, Holy Spirit, be the one who disciples us through it. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen, amen. amen. So I don't know about you guys, but I love to travel. Does anybody else here like traveling? Yeah, right. I love to travel. I love seeing the, the, the world that our kind father made for us. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And so I absolutely love traveling. And thankfully, uh, by the grace of God, I've had the privilege of traveling to quite a few uh, places in my lifetime. And uh, I, you know, I now enjoy flying. At the beginning, I didn't quite love it. Uh, but after spending three years in Asia and uh, having to fly 36 hours to get home, I, I learned to really love traveling. I now love flying uh, because really you only have three options. You either read a book, watch a movie, or sleep. And those are some of my favorite things to do. And so uh, now that I have children, I appreciate it. When I do travel by myself, I appreciate uh, having those three options. If you're traveling with children, you don't get to do any of those things. Um, but those are three amazing options. When I was younger, though, there was something else I really liked about traveling, or flying specifically, and it was a little turbulence. I don't know about you guys, but as a kid, I used to love turbulence. You know, we would come every year as a family, we would come to Orlando. So I'm from Guatemala, for those of you that don't know. But every year, we would come to Orlando, and, um, and so we would spend a few you know, days in different parks or whatever. And so my brother and I specifically... We loved rides so much that on our flight home, we would always, you know, every time there was turbulence, we would raise our arms and like, woo, and do that whole thing. And, and so I used to really enjoy it. Now, when things got a little too rocky, I had this little trick that I know most of you guys do, which is I used to look at the flight attendants, right? If things are shaky, you look at the flight attendant. Why? Because, you know, they do this every day. So if they get nervous, then I'll be nervous. But if not... I'm cool, and I'll just look at them, you know, keep doing this whole thing. Now, it makes sense, right? <laughs> they do it all the time. Uh, so it makes sense for me to look at them for assurance. Um, however, that sense of safety can only go so far. And let me explain why. Out of all the times that I've flown, there are two specific flights I will never forget in my life. 
Both of these times, I literally thought I was going to die. The first time happened when I was about 15 years old. We were on our way back once again from Orlando. We were flying to Guatemala. And uh, somewhere in the middle of the flight, things got a little shaky. So we were doing this whole woo you know, with my brother. All of a sudden, we hit an air bubble. Oh, that's what we were told later. We hit an air bubble, and the plane just dropped, right? A few thousand feet from what I hear. I don't know. Uh, we'll ask Taylor later if that's possible. Uh, but that's why we were told that it dropped a few thousand feet. So everybody's screaming, freaking out. All these ladies are like just praying out loud. Uh, there's literally food on the ceiling, like just falling, right? And it was just terrible. Terrible. It was terrifying. And I was sitting next to my grandpa, and he did not help. Let me tell you. As things were getting bad, he looked at me. He's like, it's a shame, man. You're so young. <laughs> I kid you not. And then he reassures me by telling me, you know, the good news is if we die, it's not going to hurt. And I'm like, thank you? Um, so at that point, I look at the flight attendant, right? That's my trick. I look at a flight attendant. So I started looking for a flight attendant. I look all the way in the back. And I kid you not, one of the flight attendants is collapsed on the floor, clutching the picture of her boyfriend and freaking out saying, we're going to die. And she's, she, and then the rest of them are kind of like, you know, like dragging her to the back and she's holding on to the, to the picture saying, when I get, if we land, I'm quitting this job. My boyfriend is right. We shouldn't do this. And so as you can imagine, I started freaking out a little bit. I thought we were going to die. The second time, a few of you guys were actually there in that flight, right? Uh, ladies, you remember that flight? We were on our way to... Bolivia, so this is our first flight, you know, we're, we're going, we're going to stop in Bogota and then go to um, Bolivia, and that flight was rocky. That flight was bad. Um, I remember, like, things started getting shaky, and there was this girl a few rows in front of me that's just losing it, right? And so this flight attendant walks to her, and he's trying to calm her down, and I'm just pretending like I'm cool, like I'm not freaking out inside. Because I, I literally, I look out the window, and it looks like we're riding a bird, right? The, fly, the, 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 the wings are just flapping up and down, and I'm like, we're going to die. So once again, I look at a flight attendant for reassurance, and this man, I kid you not, is collapsed onto the floor once again. Now, this was a little less dramatic. This guy's just sitting on the floor for safety reasons, but it's still not super reassuring, right? And so... Why am I telling you this? Because you know what? We often look at the wrong things for reassurance. Because when things get rocky, let me tell you, you look at that flight attendant collapse onto the floor and you quickly realize they have no power to change the situation. There is nothing they can do to save you. Why am I saying this? Because you and I tend to do this in our Christian walk. We so often look at the wrong things to reassure us about our salvation. The way we do this is often by looking at our own works. You know, like we're kind of, things are getting a little uh, out of hand in our life and we start wondering like, am I, am I actually really in Christ? And then we tend to look at our works, right? We, we tend to look at the last week, like have I been obeying? Have I been reading my Bible? And the problem is that when things are rocky, <laughs> just as that collapsed flight attendant, your works have nothing to do with your salvation. They can't save you. This morning, we're going to look at a passage where Paul 
is pointing the Thessalonians to four truths that will sustain them. Because when we look at our works, there's no reassurance that comes from our works. If you look at your works for reassurance or for assurance of your salvation, you will most likely freak out a little bit because they are never enough. Last week, we talked about how Paul was caring for the Thessalonians who were shaken. Remember, they had taken, off their, eyes, they had taken their eyes off the truth of Scripture. They had allowed some false teachers to tell them and convince them that the day of the Lord had already happened, and so they were freaking out. Paul then writes them a letter, and his desire is to, to bring them assurance. He knows they're shaken, and so he wants to point them in this passage to four truths that will sustain them. And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. And we're going to be jumping around a little bit in the text so that it makes a little sense. So let me warn you there. But I want us to start by reading verse, uh, verse 15. And verse 15 says this. It says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letters. And so Paul is telling us this morning that we stand firm by holding on to the truth, by holding on to the truth that is solid and that will sustain us. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we, were, we were brand new here in Titusville. We, had our we got our first invitation to go to a birthday party. And so I do want to thank the uh, Musol family. I don't know if you're here this morning, but I want to thank you for inviting us. Uh, for not, you know, you invited us when you didn't even know us. And so we, uh, you know, we brought our kids to the party. I, I, I was there with, with both Tiago and Nora, and my kids had a blast. Um, what I really appreciated about the party was that there was a piñata. I'm Latino, so piñatas are my jam, right? Uh, I grew up beating this knot out of piñatas as a kid, and so I absolutely love it. But the reason I appreciate this so much is because I've also been to some weird parties, okay? I got to say, here in the U.S., you don't always know how to do a piñata. <laughs> I've seen these little lame piñatas that people hang, and they have these little ribbons that hang from the piñata, right? And so the kids go around pulling the ribbon one at a time. Now, most of these ribbons aren't really attached to anything, so they pull and they fall off. There's only that one ribbon that the kid's going to come, and he's going to hold on to, he's going to pull it down, and it's going to deliver the candy. Now, these piñatas, I mean, or these real little ribbons suck the fun out of the piñata party, <laughs> but at least they do deliver. <laughs> now, the world is a lame piñata. How about that for a quote? It sounds like Spurgeon said it. Just kidding. <laughs> he would be rolling his eyes. The world is a lame piñata that gives you a lot of ribbons for you to hold on to. It gives you a lot of options for you to choose from. But let me tell you something, they never deliver. All these options that you're given, all these ribbons that you're given to choose from, never deliver because they're connected to nothing. Only one of them does deliver. And that is the ribbon of biblical truth. So Paul here is giving us four truths. That he knows that if we hold on to them, they will help us as we walk in our Christian faith, no matter what is going on around us. These truths not only deliver, but if we truly understand them, they sustain us from here until the day that we see our Lord face to face. So after telling the Thessalonians not to fret and to not be deceived, he tells them in verse 15 to stand firm. <clears throat> and in order to stand firm, 
Paul points them uh, to these four great truths that serve as a rail for us today as we navigate life. These truths Paul describes as traditions that you were taught by us, he says. These traditions are the word of the Lord. What Paul had taught them was doctrine, truth, the Bible. This morning, though, he's going to focus and zoom in specifically into four specific truths that can be found all over Scripture. And these are the four truths, and I want you to hear them before we jump into them. Number one, God loves you. Number two, God chose you. Number three, God sanctifies you. And number four, God will one day glorify you. Where am I getting this from? From Scripture. Let's go to verse 13, and I want us to see, number one, that we praise God for loving us. Verse 13 says this. At the beginning of 13, it says this. It says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, and pay attention to this, beloved by the Lord. Notice that Paul starts this passage or this, this paragraph with the word but. This means that what he's talking about or what, he, what he's about to say stands in contrast with what he just said. If you remember last week, we closed with bad news, with really bad news, remember? We closed with the bad news that those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved, God often gives them up to their own desires. Whenever we refuse and reject the truth, God will show his wrath by actually giving us what we want. Giving us that one thing that we think will actually give us joy. That thing that will actually deliver and then we end up with a lame ribbon in our hands realizing it was connected to nothing. But, says Paul, we give thanks to God for you. God loves us, church. Paul is reminding us that for those who are in Christ, things are a little different. Things are significantly different because we are beloved by the Lord. When Paul uses the word beloved, it actually has deep meaning. It's not like a southern waitress that calls you honey or sweetheart, but when when Paul calls you beloved, he actually means it. He says, you are loved by God. And I know this is pretty basic, but let me ask you this morning, do you actually believe that? Do you truly believe that? Because I know that in my heart, I often question it. I often feel like God tolerates me more than anything because he kind of has to. But love me? I'm not quite sure I buy it. Is your heart the same? Because I know I often find myself in that place. And I often find myself in that place whenever I'm looking at my works to decide whether God loves me or not. However, John Owen, in his book, The Glory of Christ, and you haven't read this book, The Glory of Christ, I think it should be required reading for every Christian, by John Owen. He says this, he said something that really convicted me a few years back. He says this, he says, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on God the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do him is to not believe that he loves you. Do you see this? Your refusal to believe that God loves you actually hurts his heart. And I know many of us wouldn't say it outright, oh, God doesn't love me. No, 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 we wouldn't say it. But don't we often live as if we do? 
Don't we often live as if, as, as if we don't truly believe that God loves us? Have you noticed that even the way we say certain things or the words that we emphasize makes it sound like we don't truly believe that God loves us? Let me give you an example. How, how often have you, heard, have you heard it said that God loves you because Jesus died on your behalf? That's a beautiful truth, right? But if we're not careful in our hearts, we will emphasize the wrong aspect of it. And so let me tell you this morning, God doesn't love you because Jesus died on the cross for you, but Jesus died on the cross for you because God loves you. Do you see the difference? God doesn't love you because you put your faith in Christ, but you put your faith in Christ because God loves you. I know this is a new concept. I know you have heard this before, but this is such an important truth that we often say without really thinking about it. We can easily say Jesus loves you, but do we believe it? This love of of God that Paul's talking about is the umbrella over the next three truths that we'll talk about this morning. And so it's important that we start by considering the fact that God actually truly loves us. And he doesn't just love us in in an ethereal way. He loves you personally. He called you by name and he knows you intimately. And he loves you. But let's continue reading verse 13. And I want us to praise God for electing us. Verse 13 again says this. It says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. And I know I'm being repetitive and it's intentional because we need to hear this. Brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And I want you to say this with me. Say this with me. God chose me. And I want you to believe it because he didn't just choose a random empty seat for maybe someone to fill. He chose you. Notice what Paul is saying here, and I want you to let it blow your mind. Because God loves you, he chose you to be saved. The word first fruits in the original language means that he chose us from the beginning. Before the foundation of the earth, he chose us. And this is what we call the doctrine of election. Now, before you were conceived, God loved you. Before you drew your first breath, God loved you. Before you committed your first sin, God loved you. And after you first rebelled against him, he still loved you. And he called you. And he saved you. If you love God, you love him only because he loved you first. And he called you to be saved. And I think we often miss this. I want you to think about this. Christ didn't come to save on a first-come, first-served basis. He didn't just open up the door of salvation hoping for the best, wondering who would come in. No. He came to save individual souls. He didn't die for potential converts. He died for those he elected before the foundation of the world. That's how much God loves you. And because he loves you, he elected you to be saved. Why? Why did he choose me? I have no idea. There's nothing savable about me. There's nothing lovable about me. And yet, he chose to love me and to save me. 
This is part of a mystery. It is a mystery that, that we will never answer. Why did God choose us? I have no idea. But there are some things that we do know. Mark Howell, a commentator, says this. He says, alongside the mystery of why God chooses to save comes the security of knowing what it means to be saved. It would be unthinkable for God to lose anyone uh, whom he chooses to save. The result of resting in this promise provides you with a confidence to face the future without fear. So hear this this morning. God loved you. He chose you. He drew you to himself. And he will not, even for a second, lose his grip, his grip on you. When God saves his children, he doesn't just save them hoping for the best. I know some of you raise chickens here, right, Rick? But while you, well, if you raise chickens, this is what you do. You usually get a few chickens, you do your best, and you just hope they all make it. But that's not always the case, is it? No matter how good you are, sometimes you'll lose some. Because ultimately, it's not under your control, no matter how good you are. Let me tell you something. That is not how God deals with us. He is not limited. He saves us. And because he did, we know for sure we will make it to the end. We don't have to wonder. Not because of our own merit. Not because of our own strength. Not because of our own ability to obey. But because of his promises in scripture. This truth, the doctrine of election, though it may be um, a, a, a doctrine that makes you ask a lot of questions, it should bring you assurance. So when you struggle with your assurance of salvation, do me a favor and don't look at what you've done for God because that will always cause you to fret. Because let me tell you, you will never do enough. I don't know about you, but I'm very clumsy in my walk with Christ. If salvation depended on, me, in, on my grip on it, I will drop it and lose it every time. Thankfully, because it was him who called me before the foundation of the earth, it'll, it is he who will sustain me to the end. Yes. Let's keep going with verse 13, and I want you to see, we praise God, not only for saving us and for electing us, but for sanctifying us. Verse 13 again says this, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, Brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as a first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The next truth that Paul wants the Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonians to remember is that God sanctifies us by the work of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Here's another mystery for us. Maybe the word paradox describes this better. God chooses us for salvation. But here we see Paul is telling us that we also have to choose to believe in the truth. And this illustrates the tension between the sovereignty of God over everything and our human responsibility. God in his providence orders our lives in such a way that in his time we come to faith. While also letting us choose freely whether we embrace or reject the truth. Have you ever thought about that? God orders all things so that in his time we would come to faith while also giving us the responsibility whether we choose or reject the truth. 
You see, our free will and God's providence are concentric circles. In his providence, though, God didn't just elect us to be saved, but he sanctifies us. And he does this in two main ways. First of all, he sanctifies us positionally, if you will. The word sanctification means to consecrate or to make something holy. He is making us like himself. So when Jesus died on the cross, he clothed us with his righteousness. Theologians call, uh, call this imputed righteousness, which means that those who are in Christ have been made holy, pure, and perfected before the eyes of God the Father. Not because of anything that we've done, but the life of, or per, uh, sorry, the life of perfection that Christ lived while on this earth was credited to us, making us righteous. Another word for this is the word justification. Justification is when our standing before the Father changes from guilty to innocent, from enemies to beloved children, from objects of his wrath to recipients of his grace. At this moment, in the moment of justification, something else happens simultaneously. And this is what we call regeneration. This means that at the moment, that at that very moment, when we place our faith in Christ, we are changed. At regeneration, we are, giving, we are given, I'm sorry, a new heart. We are given new desires. We are given a new mindset. And as Sam uh, Alberry says, this doesn't mean that there is a change in you, but there is a change of you. He later says, you have been made new. Yes, there is a lot of mess still. There is mixed motives there is ongoing failings, but your most fundamental longing now is for Christ. You are someone in whom the Spirit of Jesus dwells, and so what is deepest now in you is of Jesus. This is who you are. So this new reality changes us progressively into the image of Christ, which leads me to the second thing that this means, and that is that he sanctifies us progressively. So God sanctifies us positionally, vertically, if you will, in our standing before the Father, we are changed. But he also sanctifies us progressively. The day we came to Christ, we started a process of growing into our, our justification, if you will. A few years back, <clears throat> my brother bought my son, Tiago, uh, a soccer jersey. You see, my brother and I love this team in Spain called Barcelona. If you don't like them, don't tell me. Um, uh, <laughs> however, when Tiago first received the jersey, it was huge in him. Uh, it was about three years ago, uh, and so it was just huge in him. And so for the past three years, every week when Barcelona plays, Tiago puts it on. And little by little, he's been growing into the jersey. I recently noticed that he won't be able to wear it for much longer, because if you have kids, you know that the second it actually fits, you're, they're done, Right? <laughs> So I know that soon it will be too small for him. But here's the thing. Our sanctification is the process of growing into the jersey of justification, if you will. Christ clothes us in his righteousness. But when we look at the perfection of Christ, and then we look at the mess that our life is in practice, we realize there's, there's a big gap. And the process of justification is growing into that jersey of, of justification. We are growing into the position that we now hold in Christ. And let me tell you, 
It's a grueling process. But thankfully, we don't do it on our own. We have the Spirit of God in us. And so Paul reminds us here that we are being sanctified by the Spirit and by belief in the truth. And by that truth, again, he, he means the truth of the gospel. God has given us all we need for life and godliness, Peter tells us. And this process of sanctification will culminate the day of the Lord or the day that we are face to face with our loving Father. Which leads us to verse 14. And here we praise God for the glory to come. Verse 14 says this, it says, To, tho, uh, to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the third truth Paul wants us to hold on to. He says, God called us through his gospel so that we may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And church, this is great news. You were called to obtain the glory of Christ. Have you thought of that? This is amazing. Unfortunately, though, I think a rather materialistic view of what this is has seeped into the church. In part, I really think it's, it's, it's due to the prosperity gospel. Because of this materialistic view, we often think of heaven and of the glory of Christ in very materialistic ways. We talk about the streets of gold that we will see in heaven. We talk about the pearly gates. We talk about the crowns we may receive or the mansions in which we will live. Often people ask questions like, are we going to be able to fly when we're in heaven? And our view of heaven, unfortunately, is more in line with the good place than with the actual image of a new heaven and a new earth that the Bible talks about. You see, the glory Paul is talking about um, or he's talking to us about is not something external for us to consume or for us to enjoy from afar. This glory the Bible describes is also something that will, reveal, that will be revealed in and through us. Have you ever thought about that? We will not be mere passive observers and consumers of the glory to come, but we will be participants of this glory. And let that be a model for how we live today. In the church. Just let me encourage you not just to be a consumer when you come to church. Would you please consider being an active participant of what God is doing on this earth today? One day, the glory of Christ will be revealed in you and through you. Now, even during times of affliction, Paul reminds us that as God sanctifies us, he is preparing us for what he calls an eternal weight of glory. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Church, in our suffering, in our day-to-day, God is at work in us. If you're suffering today, if you're going through difficult times, please don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your suffering. Please don't forget that even in it, God is with you and working in you. And since we're already talking about traveling, let me ask you this. Have you ever been to a famous place? Maybe a place that you've always dreamed of. Maybe a place that you always really wanted to visit. 
only to get there and for it to be covered with scaffolding. Happened to me a couple of times. I had, the, I had the blessing of going to, uh, to Paris uh, twice, and both times, I kid you not, I show up to like, the, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, and as I show up there, there's scaffolding in front of it. I only know that place is beautiful because of what I've seen in books. The first time I was there, I was 14 years old. I show up, and it's just this ugly thing full of scaffolding. The second time we, we, I went there with my wife, it was, what, two months after it burned down? And so, scaffolding. So now it's not even beautiful on the inside. It happened to me also, and, and Tim mentioned that it happened to you guys maybe with Big Ben. Isn't that true? It happened to us with Big Ben. <laughs> we show up, and there's scaffolding in front of it. Now, why am I telling you this? Because sometimes the Christian life feels like this. We look at ourselves in the mirror, and all we see is this ugly scaffolding. We look at our lives, and they're a mess, because it feels like we are always undergoing renovation. Like we are always under construction. The Christian life feels a little bit like I-4 because it's never completed. <laughs> but Paul tells us that one day the scaffolding will be removed and the glory of Christ will be revealed. Not only around us or in front of us, but in us and through us. Church, when it comes to the glory of Christ, we are not just an audience at a play. This glory that the Bible talks about will be revealed in us and through us. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Verse 16 and 17. I want you to look at this. I want you to see how, how Paul prays for the work of God in our lives. And we should pray for the uh, work of God in our lives. Verse 16 and 17 say this. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us the eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, Paul closes this section with a small prayer, what we may call a benediction. And in this short benediction, he reminds the Thessalonians that as they hold fast to the truth that they have been taught, God is ultimately in charge. Now that Paul has told us that God is in charge of our salvation from beginning to the day that we see him face to face, he now models how we still depend on him in prayer. A good understanding of God's sovereignty pushes us towards God in prayer and not away from him. When we think about God's sovereignty, we might be tempted not to pray because in the end, he's in charge of it all, isn't he? But notice Paul immediately prays for the Thessalonians. In his prayer, he reminds them that God has already provided for them comfort and hope. Then he asks God to continue to apply that comfort as they live out these truths. He prays that they might be established in every good work and word. Paul is praying that these truths that he just shared with the Thessalonians would shine through their works and through their words. These words have implications. These truths will affect directly the way that we live and the way that we relate to others. God is working in us and through us. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. If you are in Christ, what well, he started the day that you affirmed with your mouth and believed in your heart that he is Lord, he will bring it to completion. Not 
because of you, but in spite of you. The great Dutch theologian Herman Boving said this, God never releases his grip on us and never abandons his claim on us, on our service and on our complete consecration. Brothers, sisters, if you are in Christ, God is intimately engaged in your life. If you paid attention to what we just said, you'll notice that in these short verses, we see the three persons of the Trinity directly involved in your salvation and your sanctification. We see God the Father calling you to salvation. We see God the Son dying for you and justifying you. And we see God the Holy Spirit uh, who dwells in you and sustains you until the day he comes back. Now, I'm aware, I'm aware that there may be some of you here who are not yet in Christ. If this is you, is it possible that maybe the God who orders our lives has you here so that today would be the day that you put your faith in Christ? Is it possible that today may be the day of your salvation where everything that has happened in your life has come to this point specifically that you would set your eyes in Christ and call upon his name for salvation? If that's you, We'd love to pray for you at the end of the service. We'd love to answer any questions that you may have. If this is you, if you feel God drawing you to himself this morning, please talk to us. You can talk to Tim, you can talk to me, you can talk to any of the elders. You can talk to the person sitting next to you, whoever invited you here today. We would love to talk to you. We could even grab coffee during the week if you want to. <laughs> We'd love to talk to you. I also want to address those of you who may be struggling with assurance because I know this is a very real thing. And because I know this is a very lonely place to be in, I want us to do something this morning. Maybe you've professed your faith. Maybe you've been in church for a while, but lately you feel like you're just not sure. If that's you, would you raise your hand this morning? I'm asking this not to embarrass you, but because I want you to know that you're surrounded by uh, many other saints that have gone through the same. By many people that are sitting there, I want you to look at your neighbors and I want you to see other people that have struggled with the same questions. Some of us maybe have found assurance. If this is you, if you're struggling with assurance this morning, we're about to pray. So would you raise your hand just so that your neighbors can pray with you? I know it can be a very lonely place to be in. You walk into church and you think that everybody else has it figured out. Why not you? That's not true. That's not true. We're all holding on for dear life because we don't have it figured out. And so if you've been struggling to believe that you are in Christ if you've been struggling because maybe you look at your works and you say, that, that doesn't show much. Would you please lift your hands this morning so that we pray for you. Church, let us stand. We're going to pray together. If you want prayer, would you raise your hand that your neighbors can pray for you? Let us pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your word. Thankful, Father, for the fact that you love us so that you would call us. Father, that knowing who we would be and what we would do and all the ways in which we would fail you, you still called us and set us apart for salvation. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would blow our minds with this truth this morning. That you would awaken our sleepy hearts this morning. That we would believe this truth. Heavenly Father, I pray, would you please let us see what you can see. Would you please allow these truths to grip our hearts in such a way, Father, that we would never question your love for us again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you not only for what you have done for us in days past, but we thank you for the promises of glory that we find in Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your patience. Father, your word tells us that you are patient because you want us to repent, Lord. You are waiting for us, Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you and we'll pray, Lord. Would you please help us, Lord, as we walk in Christ? Would you help us, Lord, delight in the work of the Spirit in our lives today? Would you help us as a church, Father, to encourage one another in your word, to build one another up in your scripture, Lord, to point one another to you? Lord, we love you, and we confess that we are nothing without you. We love you, Lord, and now we want to respond to you in singing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, let us praise our God.